You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 208 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. We're going to pick up right where we left off last time, with Kirby Smith striking north into Kentucky with a small rebel army, while the other Confederate general who figures in our story, Braxton Bragg, was forced to delay his own advance because his artillery and supply wagons were still arriving at Chattanooga. As we mentioned last time, Kirby Smith had fallen hard for Kentucky's siren song of glory, and that, coupled with Bragg's own waffling, had meant that control of the campaign had been taken out of Bragg's hands. It would now be very, very difficult to coordinate the movements of the two Confederate armies, but nonetheless, Bragg now had no choice but to dance to the tune that Kirby Smith was playing. Kirby Smith was already well up into Kentucky by the time Bragg finally was able to begin his march out of Chattanooga, so Bragg fainted toward Nashville, then moved north into the Bluegrass State, following the line of the Louisville and Nashville Railroad. Bragg's move meant that the Union Army of the Ohio, commanded by Don Carlos Buell, which had been slowly moving toward Chattanooga, had now been outflanked, and as a result, Buell was obliged to move north as well. Meanwhile, the Federal High Command was scrambling to react to Kirby Smith's march into Kentucky. Henry Halleck, who was recently installed as General-in-Chief in Washington, hastily reorganized the Department of the Ohio and named Horatio Wright as its commander. Wright forwarded a growing collection of mostly green Union troops to the city of Lexington in the heart of the Bluegrass region. Those federal soldiers were temporarily commanded by Lew Wallace, but when one of Don Carlos Buell's division commanders, Bull Nelson, arrived in Lexington on August 24th, Nelson took over and sent Wallace packing. Department Commander Wright had little confidence in the new recruits from Indiana and Ohio who were being quickly forwarded to defend the Bluegrass State, and so he believed the line of the Kentucky River offered the most favorable terrain to meet the advancing Confederates. 
Imposing bluffs line the river as it flows through the countryside south of Lexington, and the few crossing points could be easily defended, even by green troops. Lew Wallace had planned on making a stand along the Kentucky River, but Bull Nelson, a large, loud, aggressive, profane man, had his own ideas. Nelson decided to push troops south of the river, and so the Federals already at the Kentucky River marched south to Richmond. Then Nelson kept some men in Lexington while moving others to the area of Lancaster and Danville, west of Richmond. Nelson intended for this force to threaten Kirby Smith's flank if the rebel general ventured further north. Nelson also ordered three infantry regiments and some artillery to march from Nicholasville to join the five regiments that had been advanced to Richmond. Uh, This is neither here nor there, but I did quite a bit of substitute teaching in Jessamine County there at Nicholasville after college. Okay. Well, when all was said and done, the eight regiments of Union troops at Richmond were hastily organized into two brigades and put under the command of two brigadiers who had accompanied Bull Nelson to Kentucky. They were Malin Manson and Charles Cruft. Nelson put Manson in overall charge of the force at Richmond. Neither Manson nor Cruft were very impressed with the still-wet-behind-the-ears greenhorns who made up their new commands. After the Battle of Richmond, Manson wrote, quote, I deem it proper here to state that the troops which I found at Richmond, when I arrived there three days before the battle, had only been in service from ten to twenty-five days. Some of the regiments never had had a battalion drill and knew not what a line of battle was. They were undisciplined, inexperienced, and had never been taught the manual of arms. And so the opposing forces about to battle each other were similar in size, but not in experience. Kirby Smith had about 5,500 men in the divisions of Patrick Claiborne and Thomas Churchill, and 1,200 cavalry under Colonel John Scott. On the Union side, Manson had about 6,500 infantry and about 1,000 cavalry. The biggest difference was that most of the Confederate troops were veterans, and this, as you might guess, would prove a tremendous advantage. As we mentioned in the last show, when Kirby Smith entered Kentucky, his cavalry had ranged ahead, and on August 23rd at Big Hill, about 16 miles south of Richmond, the rebel horsemen under Colonel Scott had captured a Union wagon train headed for Cumberland Gap and routed its green and panic-stricken cavalry escort. The victorious Confederate troopers had ridden on to the outskirts of Richmond, threatened the place, but then had withdrawn back to Big Hill to wait for Kirby Smith. Colonel Scott sent a report to Smith saying that the way to Lexington, by way of Richmond, seemed open, as he had encountered only raw enemy troops along that route. On the 25th, Union Cavalry was sent out on a scouting mission to see if they could learn something of the Confederate forces' location and intentions, and by the evening of the 28th, they were able to report the enemy was gathering in strength in the Big Hill area. But next came a serious breakdown in communication as the report was sent to Richmond. Bull Nelson, however, had just left that place for Lexington, and as a result, it took him 16 hours to receive the report. 
It's reasonable to assume that had Nelson received in a timely fashion the news that the rebels were concentrating at Big Hill, he quite probably would have quickly united his badly divided forces instead of leaving them separated. Nelson's visit to Lexington on August 28th was prompted by the fact that there was no telegraph line between there and Richmond, so when he was in Richmond, he had no direct contact with his detachments over in Lancaster and Danville. And Nelson apparently thought those detachments west of Richmond would not only cover Camp Dick Robinson, but that if his entire force were to be concentrated in that area, then it could pose a serious threat to the Confederates' left flank if the rebels moved straight north toward Lexington. Or it could fall upon the enemy rear if Kirby Smith turned back south toward Tennessee to confront Buell. The only trouble was, when Nelson went to Lexington on the 28th and left Manson in charge at Richmond, he didn't tell Manson about this plan. Rather than ordering Manson to move west to join this planned concentration at Lancaster, Nelson merely instructed him to remain where he was there at Richmond. On the 28th, Colonel Scott reported to Kirby Smith that a large force of Federals was now at Richmond, barring the way north to Lexington. Smith was at the Rockcastle River with Claiborne and Churchill when he received this news. The Confederate infantry had just completed a grueling three-day march through the Barrens region of Kentucky in oppressive heat through rough country that was not only in the grip of drought, but the residents, contrary to expectations, had greeted the marching rebels not as liberators, but with downright hostility. Kirby Smith ordered both of his infantry divisions, with Claiborne in the lead and Churchill following, to march north toward Big Hill. And so on the morning of the 29th, a Union cavalry detachment under Lieutenant Colonel Reuben Monday could send that message reporting a strong Confederate force concentrating in the Big Hill area. As we mentioned a few minutes ago, it took 16 hours for Bull Nelson to receive that news. Meanwhile, Manson in Richmond ordered Monday to keep the rebels under observation. But by the afternoon of that day, the 29th, Manson learned that Monday was being driven north with thousands of Confederates close on his heels. When he received this news, Manson later said, quote, The only question for me now to determine was whether I should allow the enemy to attack me in my camp or whether I should advance and meet him. Because there was a line of hills a mile and a half south of the Federal encampment that offered favorable terrain for a defensive stand, Manson decided to seize that ground before the enemy got there, so he ordered his brigade forward to that spot while Cruft's brigade remained in reserve. As the Green Union troops advanced south along the road, some skirmishing with Colonel Scott's rebel cavalry led Manson to deploy part of his brigade across the road. After exchanging some artillery fire with the Yankees, the Confederates withdrew. That evening, Manson's brigade camped alongside the road at White's Farm, just north of Mount Zion Church. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, What's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. 
There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation, Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast. Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics, we go back to source materials in their original languages, and we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer, or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast, wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. On Saturday, August 30th, 1862, in Virginia, the two-day Battle of Second Manassas was reaching its climax, while here in Kentucky, on that same day, the Battle of Richmond was a drama that would unfold in three parts. The first act began when Kirby Smith ordered Patrick Claiborne to begin the Confederate attack. Smith was anxious to begin the fighting, since he was afraid the Federals in front of him might slip away to the north and make their defensive stand along the Kentucky River. But rather than withdraw, Malin Manson was obeying his orders from Bull Nelson to stay put at Richmond. Well, actually, the spot Manson had decided to make his stand was about five to five and a half miles south of Richmond. Anyway, after sending a message telling Cruff to bring his men up, Manson deployed his brigade in line of battle just south of Mount Zion Church, on either side of the road. The 55th Indiana was on the east side of the road, behind a fence. The 69th Indiana was to the west, and the Federal artillery deployed in the center, astride the road. The 71st Indiana was in reserve, 300 yards to the rear. When his last regiment, the 16th Indiana, arrived on the scene, Manson placed them on his far left, beyond the men of the 55th, in some woods. As Claiborne's Confederates came up the road, they came under fire from the Federal cannon. Claiborne responded by bringing his own artillery up, while maneuvering to deploy his division to the east of the Richmond Road. Since Kirby Smith hadn't yet arrived on the scene, Claiborne decided he would position his men in an extended line of battle to the east of the road and move so as to outflank the Union left. When Kirby Smith arrived on the scene, however, he told Claiborne to delay any attack until Churchill's division came up. And once Churchill was there also, one of his brigades would assault the Federal right, while Claiborne would advance Colonel Benjamin Hill's brigade to strike the Federal left. Colonel Preston Smith's brigade would be held in reserve to exploit any breakthrough. 
about 10 a.m., Churchill's leading brigade, commanded by Colonel Thomas McRae, arrived and started to move into position west of the road. Manson had feared an attack on his left all along, and that fear would cause him to make a terrible mistake. As the skirmishing all along the line increased in intensity, Manson grew increasingly concerned about his left, so he sent his reserve regiment, the 71st Indiana, to support that flank, there east of the road. For good measure, to shore up his left, he also sent over seven companies of the 69th Indiana that had been posted on his right, west of the road. That meant that only three companies of the 69th remained on the Union right to confront McRae's brigade of rebels. Manson's strengthening of the Union left caused Claiborne to counter by moving the 154th Tennessee up to the front. The 154th held the extreme right of Preston Smith's reserve line. The Tennesseans were led by Colonel Edward Fitzgerald. One of the Confederates later recalled how, quote, the gray line steadily advanced through a heavy fire from the Yankee batteries until we reached a rail fence where we encountered the infantry who were strongly posted on the opposite side of an old field, and from the skirt of woods they opened on us with a galling volley of musketry. One of the first rebel casualties was Colonel Fitzgerald, who was shot in the head and died instantly. The furious federal fire directed at the 154th Tennessee provoked an immediate response from Claiborne. He moved the 13th Arkansas and 15th Arkansas, under the command of Colonel Lucius Polk, to support the Tennesseans. The Arkansans maneuvered so as to swing around to the east of the 154th, and once they were far enough into the woods over there, Claiborne planned to swing them north so as to outflank the Yankee left. And so, by overloading his left, Manson had actually triggered the rebel move he feared the most, that is, a Confederate attack against that flank. Meanwhile, Manson remained unaware of McRae's impending attack on the Union right. Less than a quarter of a mile west of the road ran a creek, and a mile beyond it was a big cornfield, and north of the cornfield was a ravine that cut beyond the Union right flank. All of that's to say that the nature of the terrain in that sector served to effectively mask the movement of McRae's rebels as they moved to strike Manson's right flank west of the road. McRae's Confederates used the cover of the creek and the cornfield and then burst out of the ravine to overwhelm the three companies of the 69th Indiana who had been left west of the road to guard the Union right flank. Meanwhile, over on the Union left, Preston Smith's Arkansans perfectly executed Claiborne's wishes by enfilading the Union left. This was all too much for the Green Yankees, and Manson's line quickly began to go to pieces. With the Federal line rapidly disintegrating, Patrick Claiborne was personally preparing to lead Hill's brigade forward in pursuit. But as Claiborne stopped to talk to Polk, who had been wounded, he himself was wounded by a bullet that hit him in the cheek, destroyed some teeth, and exited out his open mouth. This, he later said, deprived him of, quote, the powers of speech, and this rendered my further presence on the field worse than useless. Preston Smith assumed command of Claiborne's division. As the Union line gave way, Cruft's brigade finally began to arrive on the battlefield, with the 95th Ohio leading the way. By this point, the situation was desperate, and Manson ordered Colonel William McMillan, commanding the 95th, to take his regiment to the right 
to reinforce the three companies of the 69th Indiana that were melting before the assault of McRae's rebels. It was too little too late, and the advancing Confederates ripped into the hapless Ohioans. During the 95th Ohio's retreat, McMillan fled the battlefield, and Lieutenant Colonel J.B. Armstrong took over command of the regiment. The 18th Kentucky was the next of Cruft's regiments to come up, and Manson used them to establish a line behind which the 95th Ohio and Manson's own reeling regiments could rally and reform. The Kentuckians managed to stem the Confederate advance for a time, but then they were forced to withdraw after suffering heavy losses. Cruft commended the 18th Kentucky for having, quote, prevented the retreat at this time from becoming a rout. But Cruft also admitted that, quote, the panic was well nigh universal. The time was 10.30 a.m. The whole thing was fast becoming shameful. The 12th Indiana and 66th Indiana were left uncommitted from Cruft's brigade, and they were used to establish yet another federal line about two miles to the rear. The Hoosiers anchored Cruft's position west of the road, while Manson rallied some of his men east of the road. As Manson and Cruft were watching the Confederates prepare to advance on this new line, a courier arrived from Lexington and handed Manson a message from Bull Nelson. You see, Nelson had at last received that cavalry report from the day before, and in response to that news, had immediately dispatched orders for Manson not to fight at Richmond, but to march west to Lancaster. That order took ten hours to reach Manson, and... Uh, well, by that time, Manson, in the process of receiving a good kicking from the Confederates, was obviously in no position to comply with Nelson's belated instructions. The first act in the Battle of Richmond was over, and now the second was about to begin. Within minutes of coming upon the second federal line, the still-advancing Confederates pressed forward to complete their victory. McRae's column of rebels spearheaded the drive toward Cruft's line west of the road, while Preston Smith's brigade drove toward Manson's position east of the road. When the onrushing Confederates got within 400 yards of the enemy line, a Union battery of six guns opened up on them with canister, and a few moments later, the Federal infantry joined in with volleys of musketry. McRae reported that it was, quote, the most incessant firing of cannon and musketry that I have ever heard. Cruft's men, especially, fought with astonishing determination for green troops, and they checked the rebel assault. But the Confederates were not to be denied, and on they pressed forward again, until they reached an overgrown fence about 200 yards from Cruft's position. McRae ordered his men to lie down under the cover of the fence line. Seeing the Confederates go to ground, the Yankees counterattacked, but when they had advanced within 50 yards of the fence line, McRae ordered his men to rise up and fire. According to McRae, a storm of bullets drove the Federals back, quote, in the wildest confusion and disorder. The rebels up and down the line pushed forward relentlessly, and both Federal brigades melted away before them. The second Union line had been broken, and now the third act of the battle was about to begin. As Cruft and Manson worked furiously to regain some control of their retreating regiments, they decided to make another stand on the southern outskirts of Richmond. As this new line was being organized, 
Sudden cheers erupted that signaled the arrival of Bull Nelson himself on the battlefield. Nelson was in a raging temper, and according to a Cincinnati Gazette reporter who witnessed the scene, Bull was, quote, making use of the most profane, vulgar, and abusive language to officers who had fought gallantly all that weary day, end quote. Meanwhile, Kirby Smith let his tired Confederates rest for an hour. The fighting had been going on for eight hours under a punishing sun and had covered miles of ground. When the Confederates were ready once again to renew the assault, it would go forward with Churchill once again on the left and Preston Smith leading Claiborne's troops on the right. Kirby Smith added a new twist to this attack, though, as he sent his cavalry on a wide sweep around Richmond to cut off the expected Union retreat. As the final Confederate assault started forward and the firing picked up in intensity, Nelson strode up and down the line, attempting to steady the men by telling them, Boys, if they can't hit me, they can't hit a barn door. It wasn't long, though, before Nelson was hit in the leg by two spent bullets and fell to the ground, roaring in pain. Of this final fight, Cruft later reported that, quote, The enemy came upon us. His skirmishers were held back for a short while by ours. The attack soon became general and was stoutly resisted for a few moments when the whole line broke in wild confusion and a general stampede ensued. Both officers and men became reckless of all restraint or command and rushed pell-mell to the rear. Nelson, who had been helped onto his horse, told Manson to organize a rear-guard defense. Manson left part of the 66th Indiana in Richmond to delay the Confederate pursuit, but they waited in vain for the rebels to appear. Kirby Smith decided his men were simply too worn out by that time to press forward again, and he had used up all his reserves, so he ordered a halt. But now Kirby Smith's previous orders sending Colonel Scott's horsemen on that sweep around Richmond to cut the road to Lexington paid dividends, as by late that afternoon, Scott was in position to interdict the defeated Yankees' line of retreat. As the sun sank toward the horizon, the Confederate cavalry turned the Union defeat into an outright disaster. After some sharp fighting in which they unsuccessfully tried to break out of the rebel trap, the panicked and demoralized Yankees began to surrender by the hundreds. A Confederate officer related how, quote, The havoc was frightful, and the Federals threw down their arms and surrendered in crowds, and of the few who escaped, not one in ten carried his musket with him. Manson's horse was shot from under him, and he was captured. Bull Nelson concealed himself in a cornfield, then managed to sneak away and escape, as did Kraft. About 800 or 900 other Federals also managed to get away, but most were not so lucky. Yeah, the Battle of Richmond was one of the most lopsided victories of the Civil War. Of the 7,500 Union troops involved in the battle, 206 were killed, 844 wounded, and an astounding 4,300 missing, with most of those being captured. There were so many prisoners that Colonel Scott couldn't give Kirby Smith an accurate estimate, so he simply reported that he, quote, had a 10-acre lot full. By contrast, Confederate losses at the Battle of Richmond were 98 killed, 492 wounded, and 8 missing. And so at relatively little cost, in one day, Kirby Smith had destroyed the only significant Federal force blocking his path, and the road to Lexington lay wide open before him. 
Kirby Smith paused on August 31st to rest his men and parole the thousands of prisoners that had been captured the day before. Then he started off for Lexington and entered the city on September 2nd to an enthusiastic reception from the citizenry. Not resting on his laurels, Kirby Smith sent his cavalry west toward Louisville. Elements of Heath's division probed north toward Cincinnati. Frankfurt fell on September 4th, becoming the only state capital of a loyal state captured by a Confederate army during the Civil War. On September 6th, Kirby Smith wrote to Jefferson Davis to summarize his campaign thus far. Regarding his capture of Lexington, he noted, quote, The enthusiasm of the people here on the entry of our troops. They evidently regard us as their deliverers from oppression and have continued in every way to prove to us that the heart of Kentucky is with the South in this struggle. Kirby Smith went on to tell Jefferson Davis, quote, If Bragg occupies Buell, we can have nothing to oppose us in Kentucky but raw levies, and by the blessing of God, we'll always dispose of them as we did on the memorable August 30th. End quote. And even as Kirby Smith wrote those words, Braxton Bragg's army was indeed on the march toward Kentucky to carry out its part of the plan. On the federal side, in the aftermath of the embarrassing debacle at Richmond, Bull Nelson was adamant in placing the blame for the defeat on Manson's shoulders, saying that Manson had deliberately disobeyed his orders not to give battle at Richmond. Nelson also blamed the raw Union troops, especially the recruits from Indiana, calling them, quote, poor white trash, who had richly deserved to get thrashed. Indiana Governor... Oliver Morton, came to the defense of his state soldiers, and he and Nelson clashed repeatedly over Nelson's disparaging remarks. The increasingly nasty quarrel came to a head in late September 1862, when Morton accompanied Brigadier General Jefferson T.C. Davis, a fellow Hoosier, to Louisville for a meeting with Nelson. There was bad blood between Nelson and Davis going back to before the Battle of Richmond. Now, in the lobby of the Galt House, Davis confronted Nelson. Nelson responded condescendingly, calling Davis a damned puppy and telling him to go away. When Davis flipped a calling card in Nelson's face, the much larger Nelson slapped him. Enraged and embarrassed, Davis borrowed a pistol, followed Nelson out of the room, and fatally shot him in the chest. And so, in a way, that made Bull Nelson the final casualty of the Battle of Richmond. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is When the Right Pairs Fell, The Battle of Richmond, Kentucky, by D. Warren Lambert. There's not much out there about the Battle of Richmond uh, as far as book-length treatments, uh, Lambert's offering, published by the Madison County Historical Society, is a thorough examination of the fighting, and it's rich in detail, and obviously a labor of love by the author. So that's When the Ripe Pears Fell, The Battle of Richmond, Kentucky, by D. Warren Lambert. You can find a handy list of all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. 
As we wrap up this show, we want to give a shout out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Luke and Larry. Thanks, guys. We also want to thank Travis for the packet of material he sent us this past week from the Central Virginia Battlefields Trust. Yeah, we enjoyed looking through all that, and Travis had contacted us about the work of the Central Virginia Battlefields Trust, and we're happy to give those folks a shout out. They help preserve land associated with the battles of Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, the Wilderness, and Spotsylvania. You can check out their website at www.cvbt.org. Okay, so finally we'll say thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time as we continue our march toward the Battle of Perryville. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.